You're listening to the Accordion to Me podcast with Veronique Medrano. Hi, I'm Veronique. And on this week's episode, we get to chat with the singing shaman, Dorje. They are an emerging country music artist who've been featured on Proud Country Radio and Color Me Country on Apple Music. Their musical artistry has been featured on Rolling Stone, Nashville Scene, and NPR, just to name a few. And without further ado, because I cannot wait to have them start talking, because this is going to be a wonderful conversation with none other than Dorje. As some of you know, early in 2020, I was in an accident. The consequences that you have to live with after can be a lot. You can lose your car, you can lose work, and therefore money. And you can, of course, be super injured and have huge hospital bills to pay. No bueno. So if, like me, you've been the victim of an accident, you need a professional to help you get the care you need. In case of an accident, you need a lawyer to protect your rights and your wallet, and you don't have to look any further than that simple phrase by going to the URL incaseofanaccident.com for a free consultation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if the person that suffered the accident wasn't you, but maybe it was your tia or your abuelita or something, don't worry. Everyone at In Case of an Accident speaks Spanish. They can even take messages through WhatsApp at 888-990-0911. So if you or a loved one have suffered through a horrible car accident like me, visit the team at incaseofanaccident.com for more help. Just don't forget to tell them that Veronique Medrano from Accordion to Me sent you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hello. That was such a hype intro. I'm like, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm ready. Yay! Yes, this Yay! is your space. <laughs> I love it. I'm excited to share space with you. This is amazing. So, uh, what people don't know is is how I met you. So I met you um, on the Black Opry was doing a kind of like get together online. That's where I first met you. Uh, they were doing a get together online talking about um, just the Black Opry itself, representations for artists of color. Um, I was the random Mexicana in the room. <laughs> yes. uh, but I got to meet so many amazing artists and uh, you were one of the highlights. I know there's a bunch of other ones as well. I'm not going to I'm not going to name names because I always forget people's names. But you were definitely <laughs> a highlight for me. And I always I, I always kept in touch with you. I always kept tabs on what you were doing and your career has definitely been one of the ones that is just so unique because it taps into such a different space of music and artistry. So where did you start in this journey of your artistry? Yeah, um, I, I'm happy that I made a good impression on you from the start. <laughs> I feel like that's just like my own internal always worry uh, that I carry around that I have this belief that inherently people just don't like me in general. That's like my own kind of wounds and trauma. So it always just feels really nice and affirming to hear like having an impact on someone, especially in kind of a short amount of time. Um, so I appreciate that, those words. Um, yeah. Where did my journey of artistry start? Uh, I, you know, my, my family, I was raised by my mom, a single mom and, um, had really, really tight connections and ties to like my maternal grandparents as well. And 
I, I just think that that was always, you know, they were farmers. My mom was a, grew up in a, on a farm and, and that kind of stuff. And even so, like, there's just a lot of just creativity within our family. Um, a lot of singing together. That was like a big thing. My grandma was always involved in like theater groups and church theater and, and all that kind of stuff. My mom really um, was just just a music, an avid music fan in general. Um, you know, my mom also had a lot of like friends in the queer community, like back in the early 80s, like when I was a child. So I just feel like that too. Like I just had a lot of really interesting influences and and maybe in ways that people wouldn't necessarily put in the artist category, but you know, farmers who are poor and, um, they have to be creative and artistic. And like my grandma infused that into everything, her intention into the food she made. My mom always talks about that, that like they were one of the poorest families around and everybody still wanted to come to my grandparents' house because it was still the best food. Um, there was just a lot of fun happening there. The good Um, energy. My grandma. Yeah, good energy. My grandma always had trunks of old clothes and stuff in the basement. Like me and my cousins went downstairs and we would play dress up and we'd create plays and stuff and like come upstairs and show the adults. Like that's just always been at the forefront of my life. When my mom had to put me into after school care uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, one of the things she did was sign me up for art history classes after school. So I actually got on a bus and went to an art gallery like in the fifth and sixth grade and learned, you know, about history, art history, like Van Gogh and Monet and learned about sculptor sculpting and just, you know, so it was always there. Um, as I moved into being a teenager, I definitely was very much intrigued about my voice and singing and what that looked like. And, but just, just did not have a lot of self-confidence around it. And through high school, and and musical theater and and just some other experiences. Yeah, I had some confidence and then it just, I had experiences where it just went out and I just felt really ashamed of like my singing voice and that it wasn't enough. And yeah, that at about 18, I just stopped exploring that side of myself through, through music, through vocalization. Um, And it took quite a long time for me to reawaken that. And that really coincided with me, um, very actively stepping on my journey as for training as, as a shaman. And those two things kind of, you know, as you're training, working on helping to heal others, you got to heal your own shit. Mm, And, uh, that started to come up more and more of how much I had been repressing that side of myself and how deeply I actually really wanted to do that. And not at that time as like a hobby of like claiming, I'm being like, Oh shit. Like I actually want to be front and center. (laughs) Yeah, of taking up space in that way. Because I think I've, the intersections that I grew up in, my, my mom is white, I'm biracial. And, you know, I grew up in very small rural communities in Alberta up here. We often, Alberta, where I live, the province of Alberta, is often called the Texas of Canada. That gives people like a, you know. I, I was about to say, I don't think people realize thing. that you are from Canada. I did, I, I yes. realize now I did not put it in your bio, but you yeah. are from Canada. I, I hyped you up and completely forgot to say that you're from Canada. And I'm so sorry about that. But, uh, Something I I wanted to ask is, have you always lived in Canada? Has your family always been in Canada? Um, Yeah. So on my mom's side, uh, my great grandpa, Jackson, immigrated here from Ireland. 
Um, okay. And same on the on the maternal uh, side of her family. They immigrated from um, the UK uh, and Wales as well. And uh, then on my father's side, my father's family is from the small island of Dominica. Um, it's it's kind of in the same area, proximity of Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, they have been between, uh, from Dominica, immigrated over to like Toronto. Um, and then now my father and my stepmom and um, some of my siblings all live in New York. They, they came over to New York. They've got dual citizenship there. So I've always lived in Canada. Um, but uh, I would say I'm a bit worldly, I guess, in that <laughs> sense. Family is spread yeah. out yeah. in all those different areas. Yeah. But yes, I'm here in Canada. That happens a lot. People often assume that I am in the United States um, and oftentimes like in Nashville. Yeah, which is really yeah. fun. And is, there's, so, there's something you were mentioning that I can't help but touch upon, which is this idea that as, as a person of color, a lot of the times, and this is including myself, that I have had experiences where... Um, especially when I was younger, because I was out a lot outside. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic kind of made me like caramel. Like I was right in the middle. As soon as I go out in the sun, boom, there's my, yeah. there's my regular color back again. But like, I always, I always know this. I'm like, like I'm some weird, like in between until I go out in the sun and then it, all it takes yeah. is 30 minutes and I'm, I'm upset. <laughs> but I remember so clearly this experience of never being front and center and how much that messed with me, how I would always be, I would go to the theater and I would always be cast as the mom. I would always be cast as like the secondary character. Um, community theater, I had the range, but I would constantly be cast as, in, this is, um, uh, if anyone's ever seen The Wiz, this is a really, really popular uh, retelling of The Wizard of Oz. Love that movie. So good. Um, but, Diana. But the girl uh, who was chosen over me looked like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And they, they did the whiz as The Wizard of Oz. So like the, the characterizations, all the characters that were chosen was that way, right? And I got the part of the flying monkey. Oh, I got Lord. the part of a munchkin. I was, oh Lord, oh, it's, it gets worse. I was way too tall than most of the kids. So I'm getting put as a munchkin when these kids that are my same age, but I'm just really tall, are yeah. like here, are like up to my, my elbow. And I am just like a whole, like I'm a corn stalk ahead of them. Like literally. Yeah. Um, and then I was put in as a, as the good witch who only comes out at the end. So you have the one song and that's it. And that was constant for me. And it, yeah. it got to the point, you know, I'm 30 now and I'm having to undo at this point in my career, so imagine this is as a child and I'm going in 10 years in my music career, trying to expand into acting and more entertainment, this notion and this like driven upon like sense of you are the funny friend, you are the comedic relief and that's all you will ever be. And attempting to undo that 
Whew, it, it's it's work. It's Still work. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. But I I relate so much to the fact that you're saying, you know what? Like at a certain point, you're just like, fuck this shit. I'm gonna like leave this alone because it's not at all adding any joy to my life. And so during that time of shamanism and and learning and like you said, healing yourself. What was the light bulb moment for you that really started moving you on the path of like, okay, I can take space? Yeah. You know, I think that there was a lot of realization. Those realizations came through us learning a technique called soul retrieval, which is actually a title of one of the songs on, on my album. Um, and I think just realizing how, you know, in almost every situation growing up in particular as a child, like I was the only, sometimes like the only person of color, like in an entire town, um, that was something common. Um, also very, I'm very tall. I'm almost six feet. So I, I was tall from a fairly young age. And I also started developing, like my breasts started developing like fairly young. Um, and then on top of that, obviously being oftentimes the only melanated person like like in a school or in a town and then the body um, hair growth that was that yeah, really yeah. like on top of being tall on top of getting my yeah. boobs when I was young I had to deal with the hairy arms and the hairy legs and how yes. and like and just menstruating before everybody else so like all the yeah. smells and everything and god that's yeah. so that's a bitch to deal with when you're yeah young it is. And I think also too, like, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, like I turned 40 this year and, you know, there's just so much more, I guess there's so, so many more tools out there now around like body acceptance. But yeah, I absolutely remember in the sixth grade, like shaving the hair on my arms, um, just being really self-conscious of that, uh, just because, you know, all those things, but really just what I'm discovering, like how much of a coping mechanism trying to assimilate, um, became like something really important for me. Cause I mean, really there was no way for me to assimilate. There was no way for me to blend in with everyone else. And so you I think out. I really, of course. Yeah. I just like, I physically stuck out and obviously, you know, we know oftentimes kids can be, you know, fairly <laughs> cruel. Um, and it also, the biggest thing that I find is that, um, that I always remember is that I was always put forward as like, people always volunteered me. So like if somebody had to be the leader or had to ask the question or had to do the thing that happened all the time, like as a, I was always put in that caregiver role or as um, just pressed upon me as an adult, even at like, you know, 11, 12 years old, adults were so shocked by my age and were like, I thought you were like 20. Like I thought you were, I, I got those things for so long. And so, I feel like there was a big chunk of my life in particular after um, I experienced uh, sexual abuse and assault starting at the age of eight, like just this theme of me having to grow up really, really quickly. And um, I think because of, you know, a lot of subconscious bias that people have around, you know, a black um, female presenting person, like they have these ideas that we are the caregivers, the mamies, the you know, the, literally the house slave, like, um, those things come into play. Absolutely. Comedy. I remember in high school, um, you know, in drama class, I developed this character, like it was me as Oprah. <clears throat> I got called Oprah and Queen Latifah a lot. And 
uh, that was a lot of times how I internalized that. And like, I would make myself the joke. So I had this like Oprah thing that I would do and that it started to get asked for. Like when we were doing improv exercise, people would be like, do Oprah. Um, because I would pretend that I was hosting the show and then I would like turn into <laughs> that. Like I turn Oprah into like a preacher, essentially that like <laughs> she gets taken over by like Jesus and she does this whole thing. And it was like really funny. Like I can, look back on it, but just like, you know, I guess like me kind of leaning into some of those tropes, there's a lot of internalized racism in particular and misogyny that I myself am still unpacking and unraveling and and understanding that I really just did that from a survival. Like if I joke about my blackness or if I lean into like a stereotype, then someone else doesn't, can't do it first. And then I Mm -hmm. feel like I'm included, like I'm a part of the joke. And I mean, I had a lot of very harmful experiences in particular around my race, um, where my life was threatened, um, you know, that I was bullied, like, well before I got out of school, like, you know, up until the age of 17, um, in really, like, dangerous situations and scenarios. And so I really had to put away those sides and just figure out how, you know, I got called the Oreo a lot. So black on the outside, white on the inside. Um, I didn't really get to connect with my black side of my family until I was 18 and older, and, uh, yeah, it, it just, it did. It, it just created this place of like me not being visible and for me to be visible is dangerous. So I have to do everything I can to not, cause already I'm screwed. Like when people look at me, so what can I do to just not? And I remember that arriving at that realization through the shamanic training of how much I perceive being visual as dangerous. And I mean, Mm. I still, I still lean into that. It's not something that I've fully been able to eradicate, you know, out of the brain. I'm very conscious of it and I do what I can. I also think that sometimes it's okay to not want to be so out there and visible. And that's also something I've learned through this like weird last few years with this album, because I had no idea or expectation that I was going to get the response and the attention that I did when I released the album. And um, a part of that is just the timing of it, of like timing of life, know, man. You you don't you life, don't get a choice. The of the world, yeah, a timing yeah. of the world, truly. And you know, I refer to it as racism twenty twenty. Um, you know, the the months where Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd in particular were murdered. Um, obviously, that was a huge shift. That's when we saw this big, um, you know, recognition of like artists like Mickey Guyton and Reese and stuff like that. And I was already, you know, almost done working on the album at that point. Um, and so by the time I released it, it obviously did lend itself to people being interested about people who live or outliers of country music in particular with race and what that looks like. And so the timing of that obviously all lined up, but it was a lot, (laughs) like it really was. And I, I have to say, even though I'm, I'm glad that I have found, I guess, that comfort or like, I encourage myself to be visible and put the music out there. But I'm realizing more and more that like, the most important thing was for me to start being visible to myself and allowing me to see all of the aspects of who I am and honor them and encourage them to come forward and shine as they need to. And it being less and less about external validation. Cause for me, that often causes a lot of suffering. Um, and so, yeah, that has been the, the process. And I mean, certainly my shamanic training has really helped me to kind of understand the process of that and, and why my brain is still making some of the subconscious conscious choices that it's making and 
what I'm really looking to get out of situations, what is driving that forward. And so I'm always in that dialogue and that conversation with myself. My visibility and affirmation now, the priority I'm really focusing on is how I affirm and, and see myself versus how other people receive my art and perceive my message and what I'm saying and how that makes them feel. I'm, I'm hoping that that, you know, it'll have that effect on people and, and that there will be that, but I've just done so much of my life focusing on how others perceive me and what that means. And is that how value I am based on, you know, the amount of time of day they'll give me or, you know, uh, those types of things. And, and that is becoming less and less important. You know that little emoji of the wallet with the wings on it just flying away? Well, that's me right now. I'm the advertiser. This is an ad for me, Veronique Medrano. Go listen to my music. I have a bunch of it. This isn't a joke. Go listen to my music on your favorite streaming platform. New songs out now are Malojo featuring El Dusty and DJ Kane and Mezcal Maria featuring Beatriz Gonzalez. Or you can buy a physical CD. Are those still a thing? Okay, I'm being told they are. So go to my website, veroniquemedrano.com to go get one now. And listen to it at your mom's house, because I'm sure she has a CD player. This has been your paid ad read. So do you think that's yeah. the secret sauce in all of this? Because I notice it a lot. Like, And, and you're bringing this up, but I'm noticing a pattern. Um, yeah. Maybe not with big name artists, but like when someone is about to go into this bigger space, into what they call the next level, it almost feels like you have to let go of the perception of the fan because the fan if they really are your fan they just want to hear you they just want to see life through your lens and like you're saying it's like at some point I have to choose me like I can't choose people other people people I have never met in my life I have to choose me and I'm wondering if if you feel like that's really the turning point for you when it came to that record when it came to everything and even the new music that you're gonna make yeah I yes I I do think that that is the shift that I'm working through right now and I don't know if it's like, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if it's like this hierarchy thing, like where I'm leveling up. It, it's just, it really is just shifting my perspective and getting clear about what my intentions are of what I'm looking to experience. And um, I'll, honestly, me making that album was really, really challenging. I pretty much funded it, like the creation of the album on my own and also through like investment that I'm still to this day paying down, like paying off and paying down. And really at that time, it literally was just like, I have to do this because I feel like I'm dying inside. I feel mm. like I am ignoring this side of who I am. And it is like, it is screaming at me, please let me out and please let me explore and, and be seen and heard. And um, I think again, like that was a part, like if nobody heard the album, all I knew is that like, if I never did anything else with music, um, that I will not like be on my last day on this earth and regret that I never tried mm-hmm. and that I was able just to show myself that I could do it, you know, yeah. that, that was it. And then I think the stakes really changed. I released my album in November of 2020 with no plan. By that time I had no money. There's no marketing plan. I had no idea what I was doing. And I mean, this is all happening, you know, when I'm like 
35 years old. Like this is not me starting as a kid and doing this. And I just released it then because I was like, just done with it. Like I just was like, I need this away from me. I was so burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learn later that you're, you shouldn't release albums during that time because it's Christmas. You say that, but what's really funny <laughs> to me is that my, my, you say this, you say this, but I, I did something that I probably, I mean, a lot of people probably go, what the hell were you doing? Um, because I, I got completely off of the internet and everything. The pandemic was going on. People were doing live stream shows. I wasn't in the mood for that. I was dealing with my own personal shit. And I was like, I'm not going to sit there. I mean, I get it. I get y'all want entertainment. And by y'all, I mean the the people. People out there are done Netflix binging and doing everything. No new stuff is coming out. They're getting hella stressed. They've watched The Office for the 10th time in its entirety. I don't know what the heck's up with y'all. Y'all need help. Read a book. But anyway, and I was just like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to prostrate myself for for a few views online. And I went into the studio and I think like looking back on it now, I think the thing that really kind of got me out of whack was that prior to the pandemic, we had planned and I, um, I was talking about it recently. We had planned a full 12 track album that got gutted to four, four to five songs as an EP and then, uh, and then another, like, and then a few, you know, uh, months later, three songs, the same song done three different ways. Um, but still it's one song just done three different ways. Yeah. And, and that was the gut like that. I don't, I don't think I ever mm-hmm. reconciled with the fact that I, I created something and we had all these songs and we had all these dummy tracks and I literally had to go down to, to, to five yeah. <laughs> and, and really reconcile that that was what I was going to release. Now, mind you, the release went great. And I did the same thing as you. I didn't plan shit. I just said, <laughs> I'm going to, I haven't released anything. That was my thought. I'm like, I haven't released anything in a while. I haven't done anything in a while. So yeah. I'm hopeful that this music that I'm making, that I made, will resonate with somebody somewhere. Yeah. Because what really was wild is I was still living off of the one single of that 12 track album that we made (laughs) for two years. So we released it in March of, no, February of 2019 before the shutdown, literally before the shutdown, we released that song. And for two years, I was living off of that one song. I was living off of that one song for two years and then released the record. And then it did reasonably well. Like it actually did better than some of the other albums that I actually put some effort into. So I was a little mad, but (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, it's just kind of one of those things. Life is not at all what you expect it to be. And especially that time there was, there was no way to, really say oh I can see this coming because I think and this is just my thoughts on it that it made us all really hyper aware of everything not just the music but the things that were happening within our community we couldn't ignore it we couldn't ignore it with work we couldn't ignore it with going to a bar couldn't go to a performance we had to sit there in it and I think that really was in a sense 
what created this hyper awareness of, of these things that just weren't right. Yeah, uh, disruption creates change, right? Or it creates the 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 best environment for change. It comes from disruption. Um, you know, the pandemic in and of itself very much did that. I, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and and social justice around racial inequity and stuff. I mean, that conversation had been fairly loud before Ahmad mm-hmm. and George were murdered. However, the difference was is that everybody was shut down and at home. And so, yeah, our everybody's normal um, schedules and routines had been disrupted. And so it did lay the groundwork for people to be more receptive to this information coming to them. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree with that. Like one, I think it's like incredibly, uh, that speaks to like your talent and everything. You were just like living off a single for two years. I think people who aren't recording <laughs> artists don't understand too of like how commodified this industry is. Oh. And, you know, of like that we are, there is an expectation placed upon us that like, forget this album that came out, you already need to be like, what is new? Like behind the scenes, publishers, those types of things, they'll be asking you, what do you have on in the horizon? And you're like, "Uh, I just literally gave my all to this project that I'm working on promoting right now <laughs> and like you're already like i'm right now promoting it you dick. yeah yeah <laughs> and and too like a lot of people that don't know that like even when you're releasing something you know from the time you make it even now most places that will if they are willing to review you and do like you know pr for you or do an interview like they want your stuff like months in advance right as well oh so i'm such a like, shit i just give it to them yeah. like a few weeks before <laughs> Maybe yeah, that's well, my I fault. That <laughs> I did it after the fact. I remember um, I, I finally received uh, some granting in January of 2021 to to help with marketing. And, you know, when I was able to actually hire some PR people, that was like the biggest challenge they were up against is because my album was already released. Oh, like, that man. was like yeah. the thing, right? So, I mean, I still obviously lucked out. But For those who yeah. don't know, uh, like, yeah. uh, you know, all the first quarter from January, well, not all January, but like starting mid-January to the end of March, maybe the beginning yeah. of April is all grant season. So if you're trying to make like so a dent instead of like yeah. getting debt, make a dent in your debt <laughs> for the music yeah. that you make. You're trying to get grants. And this is the time to do it, but it sucks when you're like, you're waiting for the money, but you're already about to release. Like you're already ready to go. Like it it almost feels like you got to be along (laughs) for the ride. You guys, you got to be along for the ride. Yeah. And it takes immense amount of investment. I mean, also granting is not um, guaranteed for anybody. It is a bit, it's a lot of luck. And it also is too, of just like, yeah, timing, luck, having support. There's a lot of barriers to entry just to even um, submit a grant application. I know it's a bit different in Canada and the US. I will say we are very lucky here in this country. There are tons of funding bodies and a lot of opportunities for artists to be supported financially, but there's I'm gonna go over there. Bye, there. US. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go hang out with Dorje <laughs> in Canada. Uh, yes. <laughs> because here, for that. those for those who don't know, here the funding bodies 
are very small. And even for yeah. myself as an archivist and a preservationist, it's, it's hard. It's hard to get funding for music. You have to live in certain cities that already have it um, or have it kind of placed. Um, the National Endowment for the Arts, as much as it's, you know, relegated, which it is, it's a great organization. It helps a lot of places out, but it focuses its money on museums and places yeah. that archive and preserve. They don't always focus their money on institutions or organizations. That's where private funding comes in. And I, I know everyone, I wish, I wish for every artist this year to get your angel investor. I wish th yes. that is my wish. That is my wish for 2023 and beyond that all of you, yeah. every single one of you that's listening yes. gets an angel investor because <laughs> Jesus Christ, the, the effort that goes into grant writing. I'm not saying, Hey, for any grants that are listening to me right now, I love y'all. Please fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot of work. You have to, you have to yes. almost like you're telling a story. You're telling a story of yourself and you're selling yourself. And that's not always a comfortable position for people. And on top of that, so many artists that I mean, at least that I know are neurodivergent. Um, you know, they have like the skill set to sit in front of a computer and like type away and to organize things. You know, you have to usually put together a pretty extensive budget, depending on how much money you're asking for. Like there's just so much that goes that goes into it. And um, it is really challenging. I, that's a question I've definitely gotten asked, asked several times in the past of like, just there's almost this expectation at some point, like my goal is to move to Nashville or to be there in Nashville. And I'm always just like, why? Like, I, I love Nashville. There's nothing against it, but, um, as an artist and in particular where I live in Alberta, um, I live in our, the capital city of Alberta, which is Edmonton. If people have heard of the Edmonton Oilers, the hockey team, that's like our claim to fame here. Um, but, uh, there really is not a lot of others. There's very, very few uh, people who reside here, in particular, who live at my intersections that do country music. I would say almost zero, maybe one or two others. So it also lends itself to being a bit more of a niche, I guess you can say, that helps you to stand out now to, to um, you know, get the attention of a juror on on the granting or the funding body. Oh, you know um, what? Yeah, there's really... just so many opportunities here. Oh, there's so many opportunities, but here's one that really kicks that really kicks me in the keister. So I'm going to tell you guys about an experience I had because this show is coming up really soon. So I auditioned for a show that Reese Witherspoon is putting together. It just got announced. It's called I know. Uh, Okay, My Kind of Country. <laughs> So I auditioned and everyone's like, when did people audition da, 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 in the comments? And I'm a little shit. So I went in yeah. there and I told people, I said, this audition yeah. took place in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, 2020. in 2020. So I, yeah. I auditioned for the show. I am very clear about I'm, I'm exhaling deeply because you guys are about to I'm very clear about where I'm from. I'm from the Rio Grande Valley. The Rio Grande Valley is along the border of Mexico. I sing Mexican style music. I sing Mex Americana, which is Americana music under my Mexican lens. <laughs> my Mexican music lens. I go through the first audition. I think everything's fine. I'm full, I'm, I tell them everything about myself, tell them where I live. Brownsville, Texas. <laughs> I get to uh, the second to the last interview, which is recorded for the producers. Mm -hmm. And somehow, 
some way. The question comes, oh, so what part of Mexico are you from? And I'm sitting there. And of course, I'm like, I am in Bronzeville, Texas, on the other side of Matamoros, Tamaulipas. And I do have family that lives in Mexico, but I live in the United States. Well, are you able to travel to Mexico if need be? And I'm like, <laughs> like a part of me goes, because the, the premise of the show for people who don't know is they're trying to look for country music acts around the world. So their, their whole premise is like, and the people that they chose, I bet you anything, unless they change the format from then to now, is that they're looking for country artists that are not in the United States, that sing yes. country music around the world. So yep. I made it super clear, audition one, audition two, audition three, that I am in the United States, but because I am a Mexican artist. Yeah, they couldn't see past it. They couldn't, they couldn't. The, <laughs> it, flew, it flew across and I'm really excited for the show I hope every single person that gets represented in this show um, you know does really well this is going to be an amazing show Mickey's on it a lot of uh, Orville Peck a lot of uh, great Jimmy Allen yep. J- Jimmy Allen like people who would never be given and, I, and I'm not meaning this in any type of way it's that people that haven't been given the opportunity to host a show like that like American Idol or anything like that are being given the chance in this space wonderful <laughs> Yeah. But producers, please do better. <laughs> please, Jesus. Yeah. You know, they, I think also too, like their, their job too is like to process that. It's funny. Um, I was also approached by that show. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just saw the post. I actually, and the reason why I saw posted is because somebody tagged me, somebody made a comment on Orville Peck's, um, and was like, man, I, I hope you guys check out Darjean Singing Shaman. Like I'm so excited for the show. Um, and I said on there, I was like, I actually was approached by producers in 2020 about it. I did an initial interview mm-hmm. um, and then they followed back up with me and they just said right now they were focusing on, in particular, they were like going out east. Like, so they were going to like Japan and like those types of areas. Mm-hmm. And um, and mind you, the yeah. time they were trying to do that was insane because I don't know if you guys realize yeah. in 2020, the height of 2020, um, to travel for any production, for anybody in production, <clears throat> I kept up with this. Anybody that wanted to travel over there had to pretty much like live an entire month in a hotel and yeah. then be able to travel around the country. And so yeah. I thought, and I remember that same thing when I was getting that final audition, I remember them saying that same thing, that they were going to have to figure out where to, if I got in, they were going to have to figure yeah. out where to put me because they were going all the way out there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Whoa. And I think that that's a part of, I guess, the production is that they absolutely, they do want to travel to these different countries and whichever. And I agree. It does touch on the stereotype is that people just do make the assumption that if you do country music, you are from the United States. And mm-hmm. I mean, I experience that obviously all the time. People are just like, Oh, you're in Canada. Oh God. And you're like, you're not in Toronto. Like I'm very far from Toronto. I'm like way more, I'm like very, I'm like fairly far West in Canada. Um, but yeah, I did also have, I, I don't think I, I didn't get as far as you did. And I, you know, the producer said like, there's, I don't know the comment. The last comment he said something about like <gasps> the singing shaman will be. He was just like that is going to be like a thing, and, and that like they were really nice. They were they were really like sweet to me and everything like that. But I also think at the time, 
perhaps I don't know. Yeah, they said that really it was just a regional thing that like maybe Canada's too close to the U.S. right now, so they don't feel like there is enough of a difference. Um, Texas but I also, you know, Texas is too close to the t- to the U.S. too. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, but also too at the time, like my album. Mm-hmm honestly had like had not even fully come out yet like I Mm. hadn't even fully released the album when I was approached so like I had zero profile like there was really nothing they could go off of Mm -hmm. right yeah like there there was very kind of little and just I just had no um, recognition either like I was really surprised that they had reached out to me in the first place and you know I I it's so crazy it's so crazy our connection with the reality tv show and but it goes back to like i love the fact that you were approached for it because i would have totally been like this woman needs to be on this show (laughs) i would have said the same thing i was shocked when they approached me and of course the shock turns into ah they think i live in mexico (laughs) yeah (laughs) but there's something really beautiful and really awesome about the fact that in in a sense despite what you and I may think of our our personal journeys somebody's watching somebody's watching somebody's pointing it out someone's saying something and that is what is truly just really interesting about the entertainment industry that people kind of just assume that because, Oh, like you're doing country music, you must be in Nashville. No, but I know everybody there. (laughs) Like it's not, it's not as big of a, of a landscape music wise at the higher levels, because as much as you say you're, uh, you know, you're not really cognizant of it. I do believe that you're at this other level, Um, you know, and, (laughs) and that people notice that know you notice that. And, and that's kind of, it makes that, that, um, that pool of people smaller because, oh, okay. Have these people been like, you know, in this space? Okay. Well, it gets smaller and then smaller and then smaller and then everybody knows everybody. And so how does it feel knowing that your song was number one for weeks on end? (laughs) Oh man. Uh, That was a pretty, you know, just kind of like one of those bucket list things. Like I, I'm I'm always I'm very interested about the one thing that I was excited about about the way that this reality show was pitched to me was that mm-hmm. it wasn't really like a competition and because like that was the first the very first response to me is like if it's this is like a singing competition like I'm just I am not that person like this is not that's not my avenue and I'm not yeah <laughs> and he was like that no was, like, this is that was it. my same reaction because yeah. I already yeah. got rejected from American Idol for being too Mexican yeah. and I got oh rejected God. from the voice. For every possibly good reason, <laughs> they didn't say shit to me on that one. But yeah. the the American Idol one sucked. The Voice was yeah. a bit of a better like audition process. Shit, you not? Yeah. It was for a reality yeah. TV show. But yeah. you know, this one, I didn't want to compete again. I'm like, I am not yeah. at that point anymore. And so yeah. then, and so then, what happened? Yeah. Uh, so there was just like the, that that piece of it. But yeah, the the number one thing I think for me in particular, the chart that I that I hit number one on one is connected to uh, a few different, I guess, like a, yeah, an independent chart, but like it came from being the number one in like the radio station here in Alberta that like is one of my favorite radio stations in general. And I think just like the local, the local support there of like the, the community and um, was really wonderful. And also like, that is where, 
one of the places where I would daydream about like, oh man, like, wouldn't it be so cool like, if I was played on CKUA and this DJ was saying my name and, um, and then that happened. And actually what was really sweet is that, um, I was actually doing a session with a client, a virtual session with a client. Um, and my phone started ringing. Like I just could see on the screen and, uh, I could see it was a radio station. And because it was just a long time client, I said, Hey, I just like, I'm worried I missed like an interview or something that I was supposed to do. Can I just like answer this really quickly? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, relatable. Yeah, yeah. Relatable. It's just like, Oh my God. Like, and, uh, they were just like, Hey, Dorje, like just calling to let you know you hit number one <laughs> on the chart. Like, oh like they were really sweet about it. Yeah. Like they like recorded that. And so it was really special. And at the time to, um, uh, Valerie June had just recently released her album and stuff like that. Like she was kind of in that top 10 of the charts here. And, um, she had just like tweeted my name, which was really sweet and was just like so Aww. exciting. And yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like little kid dream stuff coming true, man. And I don't know, other than that, like, that is the biggest part that it meant to me. I just feel like there was that, that sense of accomplishment or completing something that like an aspect of me really wanted so bad. And then it kind of, yeah, it just came full circle. And obviously it means a lot. It looks great on my artistic resume. It looks great when I'm applying for grants and da, 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 like the clout that people assign to that. But that like, for me, it really just, it meant that piece of like, okay, that there are people um, yeah, that like, obviously my music is resonating with, and I've always been less worried about, I think fans or audience. Like I just, I deal with such an immense amount of imposter syndrome. I know most artists do. Mine was driven a lot by just like starting so later on in life and not being a classically trained musician and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it did really just affirm some of those, those things for me. And I still don't, I don't really click with like, you know, saying like, I see you in that like next level. And I remember a lot of times when I was talking a lot to like Reese and Hunter Kelly, who I'm sure you both, you know, both Reese Palmer and Hunter Kelly and them just being like, man, like your name comes up all the time in Nashville and da da da. And I'm just like, if I'm just sitting here, girl, give me a call then. Like, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, such a, I'm such a shit. I, cause I've been told the though. same thing. I'm like, Y'all stop talking about me. Just put me on speaker. Like, I'll be cool. right there. Well, I was like, I'm still living paycheck to paycheck. And I'm like, I'm still, guess what? I got to get up and make my bed every day and do my thing. And still like, I still work. I'm my being a shaman is my daytime job. Um, you know, so I, I, I appreciate all of that, but like, I do think that there is that time where I'm glad when I have those moments where I hit a milestone, when I can just receive it as like the precious sacred thing that it is because I do spend a lot of time like worrying about like you know comparing yourself to other people and like I'm I'm not on their level I'm not in that next level like I don't I still have a hard time I guess seeing myself in the same circles as like the people that I admire and and I guess their level of success and I'm still also learning like do I really want it that way like does is that what I want or is that like just what I've seen and, you know, I think going back to the show, my kind of country, what I'm really excited about it in general is that I think it will expand people's ideas of what country music is, what country music is and how universal it is. But also I'm hoping that it starts to show people to disrupt the formula too of how they think that they can create country music. Cause I still even feel that artists from around the world oftentimes still feel like they've got to do the thing and come to Nashville and do that work with specific producers. And stuff. I still see that in Canada. There's more. Or have that particular here. twang. That, that, that for twang, me is so yeah. huge. 
the formula of the song, the, the stuff, even here, there's a producer here that like, if you work with this producer, you're almost guaranteed you're going to have like a top 30 Canadian radio, like a hot country, whichever. And okay, great. But like, literally to me, all those songs sound the fucking same. Like they all, <laughs> there's like, it, it lends itself Back. to, in my opinion, like, I guess on the, I, I, I want to be really mindful of how I say this because I'm not here to like judge people's art and their desire. I will respect anybody who has the guts to put themselves out there in some type of creative way. But just talking about it as like, I feel sometimes those formulas take away from the beauty and the sacredness of what it is to create art. And so we get a lot of things that are, in my opinion, I guess, like mediocre. And I mean that from the sense of like, they sound the same. Like there's not... I'm They're not very... being moved or connecting with the song because I just feel like I'm hearing the same shit over and they over They feel and very over. like robotic, AI, mechanical, yeah. like you're, you're, and mind you, I get it. I get wanting a number one. I get that there is a formula to make a number yeah, one song. There is. Yep. But that formula shouldn't over, uh, shouldn't precede making the art. I, that is exactly, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I do hope that shows like this do show people that there is another way because I agree there is a formula. And a lot of times, unfortunately, artists, they get pushed into that formula and with the, the understanding that that is the only way that they're going to succeed to do it. Mm -hmm. You have to do this formula. Um, And that's why we see still to this day, I feel so much resistance around, like, I don't have... I don't care. There's nobody that can tell me that there's songs on my album that don't belong on hot country radio um, because they're too cerebral or because Mm. like, they, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that's fucking weird to me. Like, no, like we can change the definition of what popular country looks like. It doesn't just have to be about, and I mean, I have lyrics in my songs about this, right? Drinking beers down by the river, like in my fucking truck and, you know, picking up a woman who needs to be rescued in a bar and like, great. Like some of us have those experiences. They don't. I grew up on country music my whole life. Um, it has been like a rite of passage. It's something that in the culture in this province in particular, it's like, it's a huge part of it. Um, but also I, there's a lot of part, there's a lot of me who was not recognized in that country music. Right. And, um, I I think that that's, that's a, that's an unfortunate loss. And, um, yeah, I, I just want people to just be more expansive when it comes to their understanding of the art or the the medium that is country music. There's so much there to be explored and put out in the forefront. Thank you for listening to Accordion to Me. The team behind this week's episode includes mixing and editing by Juan Pablo Diaz, theme music by Rodrigo Montalvo, produced by Javi G from MD Media. In-person recordings were done at the Potify Studios and remotely through Riverside FM. Accordion to Me is distributed through Anchor, and you can stream Accordion to Me wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host and executive producer, Veronique Medrano. Puro amor, puro besos, puro texto.